Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. Other than we've got uh, the kids who are here, uh, we've got an opportunity for you. We're looking for help to do a song Father's Day. And so Miss Molly would love to invite all the kids who are hanging out here to join her down in the youth room for the next 10 or 15 minutes to work on a song for Father's Day. So if you want to, if anybody's in here, you want to get up and follow Miss Molly down and work on that song, that would be awesome. Uh, and if you just want to, you know, sing a song for Father's Day, I guess you could go to adults. Um, it, no, Michael, you're not allowed. Um, I was, speci- it was specifically requested that you not be sent. Um, <laughs> no. Uh, a couple of, of, of just quick things. Uh, many of you know that uh, we, we've had some loss in the church family, but you guys have loved and shared and cared. So, Aaron, are you still wanting to come up and say, a, okay, so come on up here and uh, just speaking on behalf of his wife and the, his, his whole family, Aaron wanted to just uh, spend a moment saying some thanks for what you guys have done. Hey, I just wanted to, on behalf of me and Amy and uh, the rest of our family, I just wanted to say thank you to everybody who uh, helped out, who came to the uh, viewing Thursday, uh, who came to the funeral on Friday, and who helped out here afterwards, um, especially, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Lanny, um, Karen. Karen, and um, Cindy. Um, for spending pretty much the whole day here and uh, taking care of the food and everything. And I uh, just wanted to thank Michael and Shelly also for everything they did for us and everybody else who prayed, donated, and uh, just visited us and did uh, whatever they could, sent food. So I just wanted to say thank you from you know the bottom of my heart. And we really appreciate everybody. And especially, uh, we just we love this church and you guys are awesome. So thank you very much. I was hoping you were going to do some beatboxing as well or something. Because <laughs> after the mic tap, that's really what needs to come next. It's like a... Okay. Sorry, a little bit of old school sadness. Um, uh, so welcome to everybody else, right? And, and so glad you're here. It really was a privilege to have others who are not of our church family uh, find the, the joy to come here, to share in a meal, to spend some time. So thank you for what you did to make that possible. And you might sit back and say, well, I didn't bring anything. Well, your tithes and offerings helped pay for fried chicken, so thank you. Uh, That's how we help serve one another and and bring joy into one another's lives. So uh, it really was a difficult but special time. So thank you, Amy and Aaron, for allowing us as your church family to serve you and your extended family. Um, A couple of other quick things. VBS decorating team, you guys will be meeting immediately after service today downstairs in the fellowship hall. So if you're on the VBS decorating team, please take a few minutes uh, before you head to lunch and spend it with Miss Linda and uh, connect on the decorations for our VBS coming up late July. And then men's breakfast. Guys, we'll have breakfast for you again in two weeks. So the first Saturday in June, be sure to join us for men's breakfast. Breakfast. We'll be continuing the series uh, presented by Andy Stanley uh, and you know, expanded upon by Dawn and, and others in our leadership group. So, and then a final thing, yesterday we had a uh, work day. Uh, thanks for everybody who came and, and spent a little bit of s- sweat equity into the church. Um, for everybody else, uh, we had a, a big crowd of homeschoolers too. Both of our Thursday group and our Friday group represented. They came. That's why our beds are mulched. That's why you'll see some fresh paint in some places where it does belong and where it does not belong, um, as teenagers helped out. Uh, but it, it was really a good day. They, they cleaned carpets. They, they helped do some good stuff to honor us and respect our building. And 
the Thursday group, Lumine, gave us a great big card. So if you want to see um, some of the kids' names and just understand what we are doing by helping with homeschooling, uh, it, it's a valuable ministry as we enable parents who are all believers to follow their convictions in offering their children quality Christian-based education at home. And then they gather together once a week with others to fill in the gaps. You know, some of them, uh, they're doing biology classes because they can't do biology, or they've got somebody else helping them with math because they're terrible at math. And so the homeschool groups really serve a, an important part of our mission of building the kingdom of God. And so while we will probably never see any of them attend here on a Sunday morning because they all have home churches, our church is investing in the kingdom of God and discipleship by supporting these parents in their calling to do homeschooling. So thank you for your understanding. I, I know some weeks you walk in and something might be out of order and it's frustrating. And we want you to get to the point where you go, I don't like the mess, but I know it's worth it. Instead of, I don't like the mess and leaving it at that. So uh, <laughs> we're, we're, we're going to work on that. Uh, changing our hearts and minds towards our homeschoolers over the coming months. Uh, and understanding just how valuable a ministry it is. And as we get to the beginning of this next school year, we're going to be inviting a few of the leaders here to come and tell us about homeschooling, about why they homeschool. And if you know someone or you're thinking about homeschooling yourself, to, to consider them as resources potentially for how you might approach homeschooling if it's something that God has been laying on your heart. So today we are going to continue our series in the Gospel of Mark, reminding us ever more that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And last week, we really finished up chapter 13 and understood some things about the end times, that Jesus will return. He is coming back. We're going to see some bad stuff potentially happen right in front of our eyes before that day that Jesus returns. And Jesus tells us all this, to stay awake. And so as we await the end times, as we await what's called the eschaton, or the, the end times, that's just a big fancy word for end times. Um, so if you want to use like a nickel word at your next Bible study, eschaton, end times, really fun. Throw that out there. Everybody will think you're amazing. So, um, but Jesus tells us in preparation for the end times, it's not worry, it's not watch the news more, it's not freak out or build bunkers, it is stay awake and stay faithful to the calling that you've been given to live holy lives and spread the good news of Jesus Christ. So that brings us to chapter 14. So if you've got your Bibles or your Bible app, you can open it up to chapter 14. Just some interesting things about the Gospel of Mark um, to help us understand why we're going to spend so much time and have spent so much time in the last week of Jesus' life. Fully one-third of the Gospel of Mark is dedicated to the last seven days prior to Jesus' crucifixion. Now, we call it the end of his life, right? The last week of his life. And we know that's a not truthful statement in that he comes back, he rises again, and he is alive forevermore. And so he really has never had a last week of life and never will. But this is the last week prior to his crucifixion. And that's chapters 11 through 16. And then the Gospel of Mark then focuses a little bit more uh, intimately, one-sixth of his Gospel, chapters 14 through 16, there is dedicated to about the last 24 hours leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. So that's where we're at today. We're in the last 36 or so, 24 hours leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. We get some, some uh, difficulties because sometimes we don't know if Mark and the other gospel writers are accounting time according to Jewish timekeeping or Roman timekeeping. And you might wonder, how is that different? And I will tell you, well, one is based on a cycle of sunrise, sunset, that is, or sunset to, to, to sunset, that's Jewish timekeeping. And then the Roman is sunrise to sunrise, essentially. So we, we, we get kind of confused as to sometimes the count of days and, and other stuff. But we're in the last 24 hours or so of Jesus' life prior to his crucifixion. And you might wonder, why would Mark focus so much on Jesus' 
last week and his last 24 hours. Because, you know, in biographies in modern historical reckoning, we, we focus more on the accomplishments and the life of someone and their death is maybe, you know, one chapter at the very end that's kind of short, and it's just, they passed away, there was a big funeral, we all are sad. And, and, and really, Mark, though, is focusing on the, the end time of Jesus' life, the last few days, because in this era where Mark wrote, remember, about 50 AD, he, or, or culture really saw how a person died, how they passed away, how they spent the last week or two of their life, that was the, the real revelation as to who they actually were. That's what revealed the content of their character and the depth of who they were. It's not how they lived all of their life prior, but how they approached their coming death and what the last words were and what the last actions and activities were because it is in loss that character is revealed. It is in in the, these end moments of life that we see someone's true character shining through. And so that's why Mark focuses on the last week of Jesus' life. So as we get to Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11, uh, I, I don't know that I've introduced something to you yet, and so I wanted to highlight it. Now, you might look and go, what is that monstrosity on the screen, Michael? And I'm going to say, that is a sandwich. And, and um, it is not just any sandwich. This is my favorite sandwich. I'm sorry, I need a moment. This is my favorite sandwich. They're, they're, like, they're, they're local to New Orleans. And, you know, you guys have primantis, uh, and, and fries on a sandwich is cool and all. And I like it, and I need hot sauce and extra slaw before, I mean, and then primantis is like primo. But these sandwiches, it's called a muffalata, and I will eat one of these with nothing extra. I mean, they're just, this is, Jesus, I think this is, this is what he served the disciples at the Last Supper. This is when the Bible speaks of bread, this is it. It just happens to have lots of meat and olive salad as well. And um, so I, I give you a picture of my favorite sandwich for two reasons, so you can know it's my favorite, just in case. Wink, wink. Um, but make sure you follow the directions because they're pretty specific. But also to introduce the idea of sandwiches. And you might go, sandwiches? Yes, it's a literary device that we have actually seen throughout the Gospel of Mark. It happens over and over again where Mark begins to tell a story. He begins to let us know something. And then right as it's just getting going, he interrupts that story and inserts a whole other story and then after that other story, concludes the story that had started previously. And, and this is a, a literary device called a sandwich technique. And, and we've seen it in the past. If you guys can remember back to um, Jairus' daughter. And, and his servants, they all come to Jesus and say, this, you know, his daughter is sick, she's going to die. Uh, this is terrible. And, and Jesus starts off. And then the woman with the issue of blood interrupts Jesus. And he spends time with her, and he ministers to her, and he heals her. And then it picks back up and goes to Jairus' daughter. And, and, and we see this, this same kind of thing in the Gospel of Mark over and over. And, and usually what happens is you've got the bread of one story and then the meat of another. And this, this break serves to do one of two things. Either there is a contrast between what's outside and what's inside, where Mark is trying to give us two very distinct and different pictures so we learn a singular concept, or what's inside the sandwich serves to reinforce what's on the outside. And, and so it's either a contrast where it's like, oh, this is an interesting flavor and it's different, or it is, this all goes together so perfectly and I understand. And so this is here, Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11 this is another one of Mark's usages of a sandwich technique. And we're going to look at it here shortly, or, or right away. We're going to read these, these uh, verses. And you're going to see the sandwich, I think, as we read. In fact, many of your Bibles will give you markers as to where the bread is and then where the filling is. And, and then we're going to kind of see, is this a contrast or is this a reinforcement? Or is it a little bit of both as we 
take uh, part in Mark's literary sandwich today. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11, or your Bible app. It should all be loaded up in today's event. And let's read together. Remember, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, just to kind of throw it out there again. So if our words are a little different, it's because every translation is unique in many ways, and yet all are based on the original Greek in this circumstance. And since none of us read Greek, we have to find a good translation to put it into English. And nearly every translation on the market, except for the message, is decent for understanding what God's Word has to say. And I'm joking about the message. It's good, it's just not nearly literal enough for most Bible study usage. So anyway, Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11, reading together, since we can't read Greek in our own unique translations, here's what it says. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. So Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11, is a sandwich. And I don't know if you could see the sandwich. We're going to break it down. But first it starts with the Jewish religious leaders wanting to arrest and take care of Jesus. Another story where Jesus is anointed by a woman with really expensive perfume. And then a, a concluding story of how the religious leaders will end up betraying Jesus or, or taking Jesus uh, by the betrayal of Judas. And so we've got uh, betrayal and seeking to destroy Jesus as the bread. And then the filling is this act by a woman of just utter love and worship. And so let's dig in a little bit to first the, 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 I don't know if this would be the bottom or the top. I guess it just depends on how you're working, but the first slice of Mark's sandwich. So verse, verses one and two says it's, it was just two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus, and um, they wanted to do it by stealth, and they wanted to kill him. But they said they didn't want to do it during the feast because they didn't want an uproar from the people. Now, what's going on here? It's important to understand the context of what's going down. Many of us as Christians, we've been introduced to Passover. We've been introduced to the, the festivals that come out of the Exodus experience. And so here Mark is telling us that Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were just getting ready to start. And what we see in Exodus is God actually institutes these two things separately. That, that he's he tells his people that they should do this feast of unleavened bread seven days. And then he institutes uh, separately the Passover. And over time, over the generations, these two, because they are linked together in Jewish history, became linked together in practice at, as well. And so the Passover would kick off the seven-day feast of unleavened bread in Jesus' day. And so they were looking at a Jerusalem that would have been a, a unique and different place. Now, it says it was two days before, so this is probably Wednesday, and Passover is going to begin Friday at sundown from, from the calendars that we have and the way we understand the Gospels unfolding. And you need to understand that Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they were a nationalistic 
celebration, kind of like the 4th of July for us, except instead of fireworks, they killed lambs and ate matzah. And so, uh, you know, you might go, that doesn't sound like as much fun as fireworks. But the Jews of Jesus' day would have found ways to celebrate. And in fact, leading up to the time of Jesus, there had been, during Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uprisings and, and trouble. Because, it, like I said, it's the 4th of July. The Jewish people are like, God set us free. We are his chosen people. It's time to celebrate. He passed us over. He gave us this unique calling. And so they are excited about being Jews. And they also, the practice was for, for everybody to come into Jerusalem. So Jerusalem... Um, went from about 60 to 70,000 people on a normal day to um, three to 500,000 people during Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so you can see how this, this tiny city of Jerusalem, we think, we think Jerusalem and we might think modern day sprawl, but it really was not that large in Jesus' day as a city. 60 to 70,000 people, you know, we're, we're talking about... Uh, what's even not even a medium-sized city in the United States. And it swells to 500,000 people. So for perspective, that's all of Pittsburgh, right? So it's like everybody in Pittsburgh going to Washington and, uh, and cramming into the, the, the square footage of Washington and focused on the courthouse down in downtown Washington because all of these people were centered around, all of their activity was centered around the temple. This is where everyone was trying to get into. They're trying to experience what's going on. They're trying to see what's going down, spend time in the temple, offer their private sacrifices for their own sins and shortcomings, and also to prepare for Passover and the feast that is to come. And Jerusalem would have been cram-packed with people. Josephus, a, a, uh, an historian from later, uh, about 40 years after Jesus, said, According to his estimations, he thought there were up to 3 million Jews in Jerusalem at this time. And so this is, this is just so many people crammed into Jerusalem, crammed into these, these encampments around Jerusalem. And they are all excited to be Jews, and they are all celebrating. And so the leaders are looking at the circumstances and going, we would love to just go out and arrest Jesus. But if we go and we arrest him in the street, there are enough people here who respect him as at least a prophet or a great rabbi that we're going to have trouble on our hands. And the people are already worked up. You know, they've already had their fill of unleavened bread and, and uh, cheap wine. And so there's going to be trouble if we pursue this any further. And so they started to secretly look for ways that they could take him by stealth. So how do they have to do that? Or what, how can they do that? Well, they've, they've got to have someone in Jesus' inner circle that knows his private schedule, that knows where he's staying, that knows where he's going to be at a certain time on a certain day. And we see on the other side of the sandwich, the bread that is Judas how this all ends up working out. But that's jumping ahead a little bit, isn't it? So the chief priests are looking to arrest Jesus and to kill him, but they want to do it quietly, and they want to do it in a private manner. And so they are looking for the means to avoid an uprising and still get their way and arrest Jesus. So that brings us to chapter 14, verses 3 through 9. This is the, the center of the sandwich. This is the meaty goodness of the mufalata and the olive salad together with some beautiful cheese. And uh, it's also reflected the same story in both the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of John. John chapter 12 is the one uh, parallel account that gives us the most detail. So um, if you were to stick your thumb over there, you could read it and see. I'll refer back to John or refer to John chapter 12 a couple of times as we look at some of the details. So at the beginning of, of the, the, the meat in the middle or the peanut butter, whatever you prefer, um, Mark tells us that Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper and he was reclining at the table and a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, pure nard, very costly, she broke the flask and poured it over his head. So just to set the stage, to understand some of the things 
that are going on. First of all, Jesus is in Bethany. And if you remember, he has been staying in Bethany. If you look at the picture up here, you can kind of see it. Bethany is over to the right. And then you come through Bethphage where he got the, um, the, the young donkey and the donkey's mother that he rode on. And then it comes in and you can get straight into one of the temple gates, right into the temple, right into Jerusalem. And so it was a perfect place for Jesus to stay. And it's about two miles away. He stayed there nightly. And it's also, if you remember, the home of Lazarus and Martha and Mary. Now, anybody remember what's unique about Lazarus? Yeah, he died and came back to life because of the work of Christ, right? And um, so Jesus has had a pretty intimate relationship with Lazarus and Martha and Mary. And they're in Bethany as well. So it won't surprise you as we look in the John's account to see that they were all at this party with Jesus. Now, uh, it says that they were at the house of Simon the leper in Bethany. And this is, this is the only time we hear of this man. We, we, we don't know who he is in relation to anybody else. But we do know that uh, the, the term leper can be used to describe any number of skin diseases, but all of them would have made someone unclean or unfit to be around. So this man, Simon the leper, there is a very good chance that he was healed because he would not have been having dinner parties at his home if he were not restored. And so the, the, the assumption is that it's very possible that Jesus had healed Simon previously in one of his earlier trips to Jerusalem. The Gospel of John accounts two others. And uh, Simon had been healed, and so Simon is throwing what's essentially a Jesus appreciation dinner. Uh, and what, when we see this, it says he was reclining at the table. And historically, in this era, you wouldn't have pulled up a chair and sat at the table. You would have been uh, around very low tables, reclining on cushions. Uh, I'd get down, but then I'd have to ask for help getting back up. And, and so uh, when, when we, we see this picture of, of reclining around the dinner table, we should see low tables full of food and, and men reclining on cushions. And I say men because at dinner parties in Jewish culture, it would have been segregated by gender. And so the men would have been eating together, women serving the meal potentially, uh, or servants serving the meal. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of this meal, as everybody is reclining at the table, a woman comes in and she has an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. It was very costly. So here's a picture of something similar. We don't know exactly what the flask would have looked like, but an alabaster flask. Alabaster is a stone. It would be worked by hand into a, a small container with a stopper. And, and this alabaster flask was full of perfume. And specifically, the perfume was called spikenard. And you can still get it today. In fact, uh, the, the little flower down there on the left, that is the, the uh, honeysuckle family flower that it is derived from. So you can still get spikenard today. And it wasn't like the cheap stuff, like you get at Walgreens on the, on the counter for seven bucks. You know, I mean, anybody else do that, right? you know, uh, a scent reminiscent of polo, horse, you know, and, and you buy that, right? And, and so, um, because it's cheap and you use a lot of it, but this wasn't the cheap stuff from Walgreens. This was the good stuff. And it grows uh, in India, in the Himalayan mountains, actually, is, is where it was predominantly from in this era. And so this is expensive stuff. And it's pure, Scripture says. It's genuine. There's no question as to the fact that it is Really, really good stuff. And it says that she took, and, and, and this woman, um, according to John chapter 12, this woman is Mary of, of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. So this is Mary, the sister. And um, we think that maybe Mark kept her anonymous because when Mark wrote his gospel, the church was undergoing a lot of persecution. And uh, so to keep her anonymous is to protect her from persecution. But also the focus of this meaty goodness inside the slices of Judas and betrayal is not the woman so much as it is Jesus himself. So she anoints him with this oil and it says that she broke the flask open. Now, 
that's like taking your coffee mug and instead of opening the little flap to drink it, you rip the top off and, and you know, make it irreparably open. And you're just, you know, oh, chugging the coffee from your ripped open hydro flask or Yeti or, you know, whatever brand it is. It doesn't make sense to just bust it open and pour it out, but that's what she does. She rips the neck off of this thing. She opens it up. It can never be sealed again. And it says she sprinkled a little bit on Jesus and then took the rest home. No, it says she poured out all of it. All of it she poured out on Jesus. And, and uh, in, in the other gospel accounts, it says that uh, it was on his head or it was on his feet and that she wiped his feet with her hair. But remember, he's reclining at the table and so she just starts dumping. I mean, it's like... You know, you're, you're making a salad with olive oil and vinegar, and you're just going crazy. Well, she's doing it with spikenard, and she is pouring it on Jesus. She is anointing his whole body. And, and you might wonder, well, why would you pour oil on somebody? That's just weird. Why would you pour perfume out on somebody? That's unheard of. Well, not in this era. First, there was the, the practice of hospitality. We see that when you had a guest come to your home, you invited them over for a meal, you would wash their feet and you would potentially anoint their head with oil. You would pour some oil on their head to help refresh them. How olive oil on your head is refreshing, I don't know, but that's what it was for them. I would rather, yeah, give me a quick shower. It's 85% humidity. Um, but, but this was an act of hospitality, an act of welcoming it was also an act, potentially, of recognizing Jesus as the Christ, the King, who was to come and, and was right there in the room with them. And we see back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, the, we see Samuel anointing David. We, we, we know he anointed Saul, and, and, and that was the practice that the king would be, have oil poured over his head so he would be sealed as king. And then finally, as a preparation for burial, these expensive perfumes, usually not this expensive, but perfumes and herbs were used to wrap bodies and, and, and to place them in a tomb. Now, you might wonder, why would you do that? Well, because tombs were not like our coffins and graves, you know, single use. In Jesus' day, a tomb was a cave in which bodies of the family were placed and they were allowed to decompose over time and then eventually you'd go back in the tomb and you would gather the bones and put it in a little box called an ossuary and and so that was the practice so you could go into a tomb and there could be three or four or five other bodies and you would want some air freshener about and so they would anoint dead bodies so that the body they were carrying in would smell fresh and, and herby. And, and hopefully the ones that have been there for a while and are decomposing still have some of that lingering herbaceousness instead of just the funk of death. And, and so, there, I think a little bit of Michael Jackson, you know, the funk of 40,000 years. Anyway, um, go home, watch Thriller, you'll know what I'm talking about. But... Um, or don't, it's okay. But to prepare for burial was a common thing to use these scents to prepare a body to take it into a tomb. So there's these different things that, that could be represented in this, and we're going to see that Jesus tells us exactly how he sees it here in just a moment. So the woman, she breaks open this flax, she pours everything out over Jesus, and it tells us, Scripture does, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. So uh, some words highlighted here, indignant. Um, in in, in the, the Greek, the original language, it, it paints a picture of growling angrily. They're not just like, oh, really? I mean, couldn't you have just used a little bit and then we could have used the rest? But they are actually upset at Mary for wasting all of this perfume. They, they see this use on Jesus and his body. They don't see it as a blessing. They don't see it as an act of worship. They see it as absolute waste. And they are angry with her for worshiping like this. 
They are angry with her for loving Jesus this extremely. They are absolutely livid. And, and they begin to say, why? This ointment, this one little flask of oil, and, and uh, I was listening to R.C. Sproul the other day, and he said from what he had studied, it was probably about 12 to 16 ounces of perfume. That would have been a common flask size in alabaster in this day. So this small amount, one, one can of Coke's worth of, uh, of perfume, this small amount could have been sold for 300 denarii. And many of us, we read that and we go, okay, so what? Well, you need to understand what that is worth in this day. This is not just some small thing. 300 denarii is a year's wages in Jesus' day. A year's worth of work for a laborer would have been necessary to pay for this flask of perfume. So any, anywhere between modern estimates, anywhere between 25 to 30,000 or more is what this would have been worth in dollars. So this is an extravagant outpouring of worship. And they scold her, and they say, we, you could have given this to the poor. And what's interesting is Matthew tells us it was all the disciples who were upset. John tells us it was specifically Judas who was the most upset. And then John just says, because he was the money keeper for all the disciples, and he was skimming money off the top on the side. And so Judas looked at this experience he looks at this act of worship, and his response is, man, I could have had a cut. Not, not we should have served poor people instead of worship Jesus, but rather, oh, I could have had a cut on that. I, I could have skimmed off the top. Can you imagine? 300 denarii? I could have easily gotten a, I don't know, 50, 60 denarii out of that. So what we see is, the, the disciples, and specifically Judas, they treat this as a waste. They treat this as, as just unconscionable. Why would you do this? We could have done good things with this money. Isn't that always like the cry of, of people, I want to do good things with your money. Would you give it to me? I'd like to do better things than you can do. And this is the response that she comes up against. But Jesus says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. And I want you to, to sit and think about those words, beautiful. Just, just beautiful is, is a word that should be so much more rich and meaningful than, than we make it sometimes. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, you know, it's a lot like love in our modern way of communicating we've lessened it by using it for too many things when jesus is talking about beautiful he means it's rich it's fulfilling it is deeply pleasing it is something that is meaningful beyond measure he says you've done she's done a beautiful thing to me leave her alone and then he says this he says you will always have the poor with you and whenever you want you can do good for them but you will not always have me his, his what he's trying to say is, is that there will always be circumstances to do good things, to do good works for others. But the opportunities to really do extravagant things of love for our Savior will be limited. That, that, that we can always do the, the common good works that everybody should be doing, like being kind in the checkout line and not honking just because somebody doesn't drive the way you would like them to. You know, we, we all have those opportunities to, to, to give money to help the poor, to be able to bring food to someone when they're in need. We all have these opportunities all the time. We shouldn't be looking and waiting for unique moments. Instead, that should be an everyday part of life. But to really give extraordinarily of yourself for your Savior, for your Christ, those moments will be a little bit more limited. You'll be called to a place of crisis. You'll be called to a place of sacrifice. And it's in those moments that you need to decide, are you going to focus on what's right here in front of you or are you going to focus on your Savior? So Jesus says, listen, you're supposed to be doing things for the poor all the time. And you've got 
any time to do that. But you don't have all the time in the world to serve me. And so what she has done is good and beautiful. And she's done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. You see, Jesus doesn't accept this as an act of anointing as king. He doesn't accept it just as an act of hospitality that's over the top. But he says the same thing that he's been saying, I'm going to die. I'm going to give myself for you. And she has already anointed me for that death. She's already shown me her love and affection and prepared my body for what is to come. And truly, I say to you, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And we see that here in Mark. Every time the gospel is proclaimed through the gospel of Mark, and in John, and in Matthew, and even in Luke, the same story is repeated and every time the, one of these gospels, these histories, these stories of what Jesus has done for us is repeated, she's mentioned. And this extraordinary sacrifice, this extraordinary act of worship is mentioned and set out as a standard for us. So this is the, the meaty goodness on the inside. This, this woman who takes what is likely a family heirloom and pours it all out to worship Jesus, pours it all out out of her love and reverence for him. And then we get to the other slice of bread. <laughs> and like the first, it's a little dry and boring and a little, ah, oh, really? Especially after this beauty that we've just experienced in the middle. But verses 10 and 11, they say, whoops, this. Judas, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. So right after Judas, who was the chief complainer about the money, because he was a thief, right after Judas sees Mary give this unlimited, this, this huge act of sacrifice and worship and love right after it, he runs off and says, I'd like to betray Jesus. I'd like to sell Jesus to you. I'd like to get out of Jesus what, what I think he's worth. Now, it, here in Mark, it says, when they heard that he wanted to betray Jesus, they were glad and promised to give him money. Matthew 26 tells us he actually walked in and said, what will you give me if I betray Jesus? What will you pay me? What will be the reward for, for giving Jesus up to you? It was 30 pieces of silver. 30, 30 pieces of silver that, that were worth about one-tenth of what Mary had given in this act of worship is what Judas deems an appropriate price for Jesus. And so we have these, this, this sandwich, and on both edges, uh, you know, bread, uh, top and bottom, we've got this, this betrayal, this accounting Jesus as nothing, this willingness to give him up for a, a, a month's worth of, of, of prosperity and happiness. And then right in the middle, in the juicy goodness, we've got someone giving their whole life, their inheritance, their whole self in sacrifice and worship to Jesus. So we're left with a question. At least I think this is the question this sandwich brings us to. Who are you? Are you Mary? Or are you Judas? When you come to Jesus, when you encounter Jesus, when you spend time with him, are you Mary or are you Judas? Mary came to Jesus and in an act of just unbridled worship and extravagant sacrifice, poured out what really would have been in, in so many ways her whole life. To honor and love and worship Jesus. And she wasn't focused on what Jesus could do for her. She wasn't like, here, I'm going to give you this oil. I'm going to pour out this, this beautiful perfume on you. Could, could you like bless me, Jesus? 
No, she poured it all out, and she worshipped him, and she focused on who he was, who he is still, the only begotten son of God who came and emptied himself, gave up all the rights and privileges of heaven, and then lived a perfect sinless life and died on the cross for your sins and mine, rose again on the third day and is coming again to reign over everything and bring perfection for all who would trust on him as Lord and Savior. She was focused on who he is and was and who he will be. And she poured it all out for him. Or or, are you like Judas when you come to Jesus? We can see Judas following Jesus for, for up to three years and all he ever had was this cynical and self serving faith. This desire to get out of his relationship with Jesus what he needed, what he wanted. The man was skimming from the purse for the group of disciples and the king of creation. He's stealing small coins to to his own benefit from the God who can give him everything he needs. And what's really sad is he sold Jesus out to his culture for a month's wages. He sold out Jesus to the world around him. He counted Jesus as worth so little that it was a temporary gain, just a month's wages that he sold out Jesus. You know what's interesting is many times in our culture we see people selling out Jesus for a little bit of notoriety, for a little bit of fame, for college tuition, for for a promotion at work. We're happy to sell out Jesus, to, to deny him, to hide him, to push him away, to withhold who we are so that we can find success in the moment. Judas sold Jesus out for temporary gain, and Judas was completely focused on what he could get from following Jesus. When it suited him and for as long as it was satisfying, he was happy to skim off the top. Here at the last moment, when that wasn't enough, he went and sold Jesus out. He went and traded the Savior of all mankind for temporary gain. He went and he traded the king of all creation whom he had seen heal people and feed people from next to nothing resource-wise. And he sells them out because he was always focused on what he could get. Now, I'm going to leave it there. I'm not going to draw out any more examples or inferences. I want you to think, if you were to be honest with yourself in your walk with Christ... Who are you? Who do you represent? Or who represents you? Who do you look like? Do do you look like Mary, who is breaking open the most expensive thing she has, what is meant to secure her future here on this earth, is being poured out and sacrificed in worship to Jesus with no mind of what she will get in return? Or are you like Judas, penny-pinching, skimming off the top, only coming to Jesus for what he can give you. Jesus, I will, I'll give you an offering, but only if you bless me. Jesus, I'll be happy to, to, to serve in Sunday school, but man, it would be great if, if you gave me that new car in return. What, what? Who are you? What do you look like? Do you look like Mary or do you look like Judas? If you are walking around today and you say, I'm Judas, I'm only in this for what I think I can get out of Jesus. I want you to know you are not in a place of being utterly rejected. It takes one choice to become like Mary. It takes one moment to change your walk with Christ from one of self-serving and your own desires to one of sacrifice and giving all that you are to Him. Now, there will be some hard choices to follow. Some things that you might have to give up. Some of the temporary stuff that you've been trading Jesus for, you might have to let it go and die. And instead, as you give everything to him, trust in his provision and his hand. 
And that doesn't mean everybody should go sell everything and be a missionary today. But somebody here, that might be what you need to do. It doesn't mean that we all have to go give up everything and live lives of poverty. Though some of us, one or two of us, that could be the call that Jesus has on our life. If we were to pursue a Mary-like sacrifice toward him. But what it does mean for all of us, whether we see ourselves as Mary or Judas, is that the right life, the meaty life, the life we were meant for, is one of giving everything that we are to the king of creation with no mind to the benefit we have from it, but instead an absolute heart of worship toward him. As we close our time together with one more song of worship, I want to encourage you to continue to think about do you look more like Mary today or do you look more like Judas? And what are you willing to do to change who you look like? What are you willing to sacrifice? What is God calling out for you to sacrifice or do differently to change who you look like? And if you're satisfied with being Judas, i got to tell you, you're not living the Christian life in the way that God intended it. In fact, what we see of Judas is ultimately he lives and dies with regret and shame separated from the love of Christ. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this beautiful sandwich that you gave us through the gospel writer Mark. The bread's not so tasty, but the meat inside is delicious. It's beautiful. It's soul nurturing and challenging to us. So we pray this morning that as we continue to just digest what we've heard, that you would help us to see ourselves in light of what we've just are we more like Mary or are we like Jesus? Are we sacrificial and surrendering or are we self-serving and sinful? And Father, I pray that we would not be satisfied with just identifying where we stand, but instead we would be convicted to move to Because Jesus, you are worth
find every chance you can to gather with other believers and sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from Scripture. So if you're struggling to be Mary, you're struggling to live that life of sacrifice, consider joining us tomorrow night, 7 o'clock downstairs. We've got a great Bible study. Wednesday night, ladies are meeting for Bible study. Thursday night, if you're a student or you know a student who's struggling with living that life of sacrifice, that life of Mary, have them join the student ministry Thursday night at 6.30 downstairs in the fellowship hall. And of course, every Sunday morning at 9.30, there's an adult Sunday school class. Little ones are welcome. Even if we just, they're in the corner playing, they're welcome. So parents, you're welcome to be there. So God bless you all. May you see what it is to be like Mary in your life and then choose to Begin by sitting at the feet of Jesus and learning, and then continue into a place of sacrifice. All that you are, all of your own securities and hopes and dreams, poured out into the hands of Jesus, that you might see exactly what he wants to do. God bless you guys. We'll see you throughout the week and then next Sunday. Another message. Another message.